Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. And hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Again today from Orlando, Florida and Commodity Classic. Secretary Purdue speaking to the uh, attendees here at Commodity Classic. Almost 9,000 people in attendance here at Commodity Classic this year. Uh, Coming up on our program, we're going to talk markets and weather, and we'll talk with the president of the National Corn Growers Association, Lynn Crisp, about this past year for NCGA and their priorities moving forward. Well, Secretary Purdue speaking here, talking a lot about Farm Bill implementation. Several other members from USDA in attendance at Commodity Classic as well. And yesterday I talked with Richard Fordyce, administrator for the Farm Service Agency, and he said Farm Bill implementation right now is priority one. It is, and that's exactly how I've described it. It, it is priority one. Um, you know, obviously there's lots of things that happen uh, within the agency, but, you know, once uh, once a farm bill is agreed upon, passed, and signed by the president, then that's when we, we, we start uh, those really aggressive steps of implementation. So you're kind of playing catch-up because of the government shutdown. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's fair. Now, Will, the... Uh, we, we, we think we've just kind of, um, you know, kind of squeezed our timeline down. Um, you know, I don't know that ultimately the 35 days that we were out during the shutdown is going to affect the end. Um, you know, it just kind of, it, it, again, it just kind of um, kind of accelerates the timeline. Dairy, though, is a priority. It absolutely is. Um, you know, across the across the country where we've got uh, where we've got dairy operations, you know, they're hurting, um, and so we want to make sure that we get that that new program that that's in the 2018 Farm Bill, the Dairy Margin Coverage Program, get it rolled out just as quickly as we can. What do dairy producers need to know about that? So, um, so the change, obviously, there was a uh, from the Margin Protection Program in the 14 Farm Bill. There was some changes in the Bipartisan Budget Act um, that that was passed almost a year ago um, and then they further improved it with um, so a higher higher coverage um, uh, levels lower premiums um, that that additional production that's in tier two that tier two production uh, has the ability for coverage as well at, at a lower level um, and producers that paid premiums in the old margin protection program um, uh, the difference between the premiums paid and any kind of indemnity that they would have gotten through the coverage we can either issue them a 50% cash uh, rebate or 75% credit toward their premiums uh, for the new dairy margin coverage program. So what's the timelines on that? Well, the secretary was on the Hill yesterday and, and announced uh, sign-up would begin around on or around June 17th, um, and producers would expect uh, start to expect some payments uh, around July the 8th. And producers need to check it out because there are those differences from the old MPP. There are. I mean, there's quite a few differences. I think, you know, from what I understood uh, talking to dairy producers across the country, some of the areas that were of concern to them, areas of the of the old program that they said needed overhauled, Congress did that. And so I think I think dairy producers are going to find the new program to be a lot uh, a lot more suited to, to being a help to them. And so would encourage dairy producers to take a look at, at dairy margin coverage. We are going... Uh, I don't know what the timeline is, but we're going to start getting some information out to dairy producers, um, individual targeted uh, communications to them about what the program is, what the new uh, the new components of the program are, um, and and really communicate why it's important that they come in and, and talk to our folks about enrolling in the dairy margin coverage program. Meanwhile, we have some dates now on ARC and PLC. 
Right. Uh, again, the secretary on the Hill yesterday announced that um, that we would um, that we would begin sign up on or around September 1st for ARC and PLC. Um, you know, Congress again made some changes to ARC and PLC. The foundation of the program is relatively the same, um, but what uh, what we're going to be able to do as producers, we make an election um, for the covered commodity, whether it be in ARC or PLC. That election's done. Will have to be done this year in, in 2019 for the 19 crop and the 2020. Crop, and then Congress has allowed flexibility to change. If you, if you know, if market, uh, if market trends tend to indicate that that you would want to move out of one and move into another one, to be able to make new elections in 2021, 22, and 23, which I think is a big improvement over the old program. And finally, where are you with uh, your your payments on because of the trade disruption? So market facilitation program uh, sign up ended on February 14th, uh, but producers have until May 1st to bring in that production. Um, you know, nearly 900,000 applications. Um, we're getting close to the end, Mike. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what the payment number is today, but it's very significant. Um, you know, almost uh, almost eight billion dollars out the door on the market facilitation program. Um, so, you know, we, we're seeing uh, we're seeing we're getting close to the end. But I would just encourage producers that that haven't brought their production in, folks that are signed up, you know, may still have crop in the field. As soon as you get that, as soon as you get that crop out, and it's been a struggle, I know, in some parts of the country. As soon as you get that crop in, come in, bring us your production, and we can issue you a payment. What's your assessment of where you're at as far as uh, out on the county level, out in those offices, computer connections, everybody on the same page? That's been a challenge for years. Where, where does that stand? You know, it has. And, and, you know, I know the agency continues to try to update, um, you know, so IT platforms and, and services, you know, but it's a challenge. It's costly. And, um, you know, we only have a certain amount of money in the budget for um, uh, for salaries and expenses. And, but, w- but we do, I, I think we do a pretty good job of trying to stay current. Uh, I know there's been a lot of efforts over the years to increase that that bandwidth and and the serviceability into the county offices and with new technologies that are available. You know that's improved that. I know uh, my local county office in Northwest Missouri. I know the, the the connectivity there is much better than it used to be, and it's just something. You know, obviously, it's just something that we want to continue to improve, and and we continue to do that. A lot of different aspects to this farm bill. Um, how do you see it get, when it will all be kind of in full motion? I know the Secretary talked about the conservation programs and a lot of different aspects. I mean, there are a lot of different things. That have, passing a farm bill is tough enough. Implementing it's maybe even tougher. You know, it is. Um, I, you know, I, I think um, uh, Congress, I mean, Congress did a great job addressing some of those issues, I think, that, that producers in the industry felt like needed some, some attention. So Congress did their job. President signed it, you know, we're, and we're in the process now of implementation. Uh, it's, it's pretty difficult to implement like all the programs all at once. So, you know, so we've set some priorities. I think I think I think it's safe to say that dairy margin coverage is 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 priority one right now to get that rolled out, um, followed by ARC PLC, CRP, um, our disaster programs, uh, uh, standing disaster programs remain relatively unchanged. You know, there may be some some small tweaks and and maybe some new some new regulations that will have to be drafted. Uh, maybe some new handbook and training um, components for our staff, but but the big lifts will be uh, dairy margin coverage um, and the changes to ARC PLC and, and then CRP. And there may be some disaster 
legislation yet to come, some disaster relief to be passed. Yeah, I mean, we're hearing uh, we're hearing some rumblings that there's some conversations in Congress um, uh, for another ad hoc disaster program uh, dealing probably primarily with hurricanes. Um, but there could be others included in there. You know, we've obviously uh, in the Midwest have seen some really um, uh, just it's been a really tough winter, um, you know, in different parts of the country, historic snowfalls, lots of bad weather. So potentially, and I don't know, but potentially, you know, those could be included in an ad hoc disaster program as well. If that happens, we'll take it as it comes and we'll figure out how we're going to implement it. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Mike. Richard Fordyce, FSA Administrator. He talked about uh, the bad weather across parts of the country, a lot of the country. Well, there may be some more this weekend. Uh, March looks like uh, it's going to come in with the winter lion for a good uh, number of uh, areas around the country. When we come back, we're going to get an update on this weekend's winter storm from DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson joining me here in Orlando, Florida at Commodity Classic. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Powerful, effective, proven, tough, consistent, reliable. A lot of adjectives can describe a herbicide's weed control, but one only applies to Liberty Herbicide. Superior. Liberty Herbicide has no known resistance in row crops, more convenient application flexibility, and excellent control of key weeds. All backed by the Liberty Weed Control Guarantee. Learn more at liberty.basf.com. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And welcome back. Uh, While we are here in uh, very comfortable Orlando, Florida for a few days. A lot of people are already thinking about getting back home to different parts of the country and and wondering about flights and things like that because uh, uh, we're bracing for another blast of winter weather as we uh, kick off the month of March. Bryce Anderson, DTM meteorologist with us. Bryce, you've been doing a lot of interviews here at Commodity Classic. Everybody asking about the weather. Let's let's focus on this weekend. How widespread of a winter blast uh, are we going to see? It's going to be uh, focusing uh, practically over the entire uh, Corn Belt, Mike, uh, with the prospect of uh, moderate snowfall in central and, and east-central South Dakota into, into west-central Minnesota, and then the I-70 corridor uh, from central Missouri east through central Illinois could see anywhere from three to seven inches of snow. And, and the thing is that there's going to be a little bit of a uh, freezing precip mix in all of that, and so that's going to be a, a real uh, hazard uh, as we think about the next uh, few days. And a lot of it's going to start here on uh, Friday, Friday uh, afternoon and evening, and then continue into Saturday, maybe letting up a little bit, uh, you know, on Saturday into Sunday. But by that time, a lot of this uh, moisture is, has going to, uh, is, is going to have already occurred. And so that's going to be with us then through next week. And the uh, temperatures are going to stay generally in the 10 to 20 degree below normal uh, bracket all the way through next week. Uh, the first half of March is, is looking like a cold one, and uh, our forecast ideas for the entire month are for temperatures in the central United States to be anywhere from 5 to 7 degrees 
below normal with a lot of that kind of front loaded this first half of March. So it's not going to really improve very much, uh, certainly over the next two weeks, and then maybe just a little bit of moderation during the last two weeks of the month of March. A very slow start uh, to the spring season. And finally, I want before I let you go, uh, you're doing a lot of interviews here uh, with broadcasters from all around the country. Uh, on the topic of, and this is something you and I have talked about for, for weeks right. now, uh, the possibility of delayed planting this spring because of wet conditions, right? Yes, uh, that's that's a, a real uh, key issue, I think, as we uh, think about the first part of this growing season. And, uh, and it is going to be a, a season similar to about five years ago and uh, 11 years ago. The, the spring of 2008 uh, featured a lot of uh, flood issues and very slow planting. And that's going to stay with us, Mike. And I don't think that the entire story on acreage amounts has completely been written because there may be some switching out uh, of acres uh, on crops because of the way things are for a uh, difficult start to this season. Yeah, not the news we wanted to hear, but uh, but, but we need to be prepared for. So uh, Very true. Thanks a lot, Bryce. Good to see you, Mike. Good to see you. DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson joining us here at Commodity Classic in Orlando, Florida. Joined now by a, another frequent guest here on AOA, Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. Good to see you. Good to be here, Mike. Uh, Bryce is busy doing a lot of weather forecasts. You're busy doing a lot of uh, market forecasts here with broadcasters and uh well, you know, we've got the buzz about China and uh, different things going on, optimism, hope, uh, as, as you and I have been talking about. Uh, we got uh, that news from Bryce. Uh, he's concerned about a delayed planting season because of weather. A lot uh, a lot for the markets to be looking at right now. Yeah, normally we're focused on supply and demand fundamentals, and now that means political forecasting almost, uh, not just here in the United States, but what may be happening in North Korea and China in Europe, uh, just so many different things creating uncertainty in the markets. And and as a result of that uncertainty, the path of least resistance for the grain and oil seeds has been lower. And uh, we'd certainly like to see that turned around from a producer standpoint. It's It's been certainly helpful for end users, but uh, we, we need to see some demand to get rid of some of the surplus supplies, and uh, hopefully we're close. Kind of an old saying, the markets don't like uncertainty. Yeah, exactly right. Now, if you're an algo trader, you like the volatility. But if you're a producer or end user, you don't like that uncertainty. And uh, and that's that's who is really watching these closely. You and I have been talking about acres for some time. And as Bryce points out, that weather could yet change those uh, acres. I, I met a farm couple in the airport on the way down to Orlando who was from Louisiana, and they'd rather be home planting corn. They certainly can't be doing that. And as I look at the forecast this morning, uh, for much of the south, looking continued uh, wet for the next 30 days. And that's going to rule out some corn planting that area. Market, you typically doesn't worry about that. If we get a big sale to China, then it'd become a bigger factor. Until then, probably not. But as you look at the northwestern half of the Midwest, as we've discussed, uh, the deep snowpack in that area, it's going to take a long time for that. And that cold air is going to continue to flow over that over the rest of the Midwest as well and, and just make it a late uh, a late spring and, and create some problems. I think the market starts to focus a little bit more on that now as we turn the calendar to March, certainly in April. Not that it's going to rally on it necessarily, um, but they're going to start paying attention to it. I was going to say, would that be friendly corn? It would certainly be friendly corn. And here again, um, the market's not going to be too 
panicked about it as long as the current supply and demand fundamentals come in. If China comes in and buys corn, buys ethanol, buys DDGs, as, as we've seen indications that they're showing some interest in, you never know, we've been hearing this for some time, uh, then it would become a much more significant factor. That's the big if at this point. Uh, and at this point, I think they watch it and makes them reluctant to build big short positions. We get into April, we're continuing these delays, then it starts supporting the price a little bit more. I remember, and I always get catch myself on this too, even a year ago, uh, it just seemed like it was, I kept saying, it seems later than it is. It, it felt like we were way behind, way behind, and all of a sudden we got a window and planning got done and we moved ahead. The, the trade assumes that we can plant the whole crop in 10 days. And uh, American agriculture has done amazing things and uh, has has gotten the bulk of the crop done in about 10 days before. So that's why there's not going to be panic at this point. But I think some of our more fringe areas like the south, like the northwest, we can start to lose enough acres. And this is actually a year when we need to increase corn acres, one to two million, uh, without any China buying, uh, just to kind of keep the balance sheet balanced. And we don't have that big a surplus. We drop inning stocks below 1.5 billion. That's that's kind of a benchmark area where we start getting concerned. We're not much above that at this point. We're talking with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with INTL FC Stone. We had a WTO ruling. We don't talk much about the WTO anymore, but we had a ruling in favor of the U.S. and against China. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of amazing. We have a president who's really been opposed to the WTO because they haven't done much for us. And here they give them a, a decision, and there's another decision yet to come that we think will be favorable as well. Uh, they didn't make the decision on corn because the China had changed the practice on corn really beforehand, but it does give us a boost in momentum in these we hope final stages of negotiations. It's certainly a positive. I know the trade team indicated yesterday they're certainly going to be using this in the negotiation, and uh, hopefully it'll push us over there. China has shown that they're willing to spend a lot of money on the ag commodity space to keep the focus off of the more contentious structural issues. And so ag stands to benefit from that. Um, depending on where they make those purchases. And so that that should be something to provide hope for the farmers that are out there and producers who want to see our surplus levels kind of come down. The ruling was on wheat. How does that impact the wheat market? Uh, very little at this point. We have heard uh, China show some interest in uh, some of our higher quality milling wheat. They actually made a few cargoes of purchases uh, back in January. Uh, from all indications, uh, but nothing to really impact the balance sheet to this point. And, and th we're really not looking for them to do anything to impact the balance sheet, but I think it's more leverage that China had been complaining U.S. Uh, punitive tariffs were a violation of WTO, and so it's kind of back in their face, uh, look who's been violating the WTO. Yeah, we kind of like the WTO when it rules in our favor. We're not so uh, keen on them when the, they rule against us. Uh, okay, so quickly, uh, what 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 does the market focus on now? Is it a wait till China just kind of you know waiting to see there because it's still early on the planning story? So we just kind of wait on China. It's wait on China, but meanwhile, while we're waiting, the charts are slowly turning negative, and the and the momentum traders, the computer traders, are taking advantage of that and pressing to the downside. We get occasional up days, but the we haven't turned that trend of slowly turning lower, and that's very concerning 
um, to me, particularly for the soybean market, but also for the corn market. We need to turn that momentum around from a producer standpoint. End users uh, like it, uh, but producers don't. And the more that turns, the more momentum can go and pressure things. Now, that can give you a, a sharp V bottom and a quick rebound back up. Probably our best hope for a significant rally right now is all the shorts that are in the market. If they would be scared out by Chinese buying or something, that would cause them to get out of their position quick. Always good to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone, joining us here in Orlando, Florida for Commodity Classic. Coming up next, we're going to talk with the president of the National Corn Growers Association, Lynn Crisp. We'll look back on this past year for the National Corn Growers and look ahead as well. Stay with us. From Commodity Classic, you're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. We're live on the red carpet, waiting for the next generation Creden soybean. There he is. Oh, Ed, look, it's Creden's Liberty Link GT27. I know, Adna. He's got elite genetics. You gotta love his four bushel per acre yield advantage. And he's both Liberty and glyphosate herbicide tolerant. Definitely the year's hottest performer. Ask your Credence retailer about the new Credence Liberty Link GT27 soybeans. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. And welcome back to our coverage of Commodity Classic here in Orlando, Florida. Almost 9,000 in attendance here at uh, at this meeting that just continues to grow. It's astounding. Um, Let's look back over this past year. We're joined now by the president of the National Corn Growers Association, Lynn Crisp. Lynn, let's look back. I know you've you've got some accomplishments that you're proud of, but uh, some things that uh, you wish would have gotten done that didn't. What stands out to you? Yeah, Mike, uh, the, I come on board as uh, president of the National Corn Growers Association in October 1, and the first week that I, I was officially in office, then we got a couple big announcements around E15 and the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement. And uh, we did our celebratory dance for just a little bit, and then, uh, you know, reality set in of the fact that we were only partway home, and the USMCA still needs to be ratified, and that is our number one priority for the National Corn Growers Association for this year. And uh, we're doing everything that we can in order to do the ground preparation uh, to be able to successfully join in with the others that are of like mind then in order to put that push on Capitol Hill when time comes. So if getting USMCA passed is your top priority, would getting E15 sales year-round be number two? Precisely, it is. Uh, And uh, at this point in time, uh, we're in a hold mode because of the 35 days that uh, the government lost in a situation of work, you know, being able to get accomplished then after the first of the year and so EPA is running behind uh, compared to their time schedule of what they were talking about before the first of the year. So we are waiting for that official rule to come out then but uh, again we are uh, 
appropriately prepared in order to uh, provide our comments uh, uh, regarding that official rule when it comes out. And, uh, you know, we hear a few things, you know, that there might be some things coming that uh, might not be totally to our liking. And also we're, you know, prepared uh, for that eventuality as well. But uh, our site is on the the long ball in this particular situation then uh, trying to get that uh, in a position where we don't have to make the switch then come first of june then and uh, the e15 will be offered year round we're talking with lynn chris president of the national corn growers association of course the china situation came up which led to uh, uh, payments to producers based on market share lost uh, but a good portion of that went to the soybean growers, and I know you were disappointed with the penny a bushel that came out for corn growers. Uh, yeah, uh, our our growers were extremely disappointed in that, and uh, to be uh, quite honest, the USDA probably would have been uh, better served in keeping the penny then rather than irritating folks with the thought that they could somehow come up with a justification for a penny. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of an insult at the time. Um, but uh, we had those conversations with the USDA and uh, their focus uh, what, on that market impact to corn was uh, narrowly focused just on China and they didn't take into account the loss of markets for ethanol or DDGs as well, which also has a market impact uh, for corn. And uh, we made our case, but uh, that fell on deaf ears. And so, you know, it is what it is right now. And we're looking at other issues that are on our plate. You did get uh, during after you were named uh, president, uh, a farm bill got passed last year. Now we're still in the implementation stage of that, but it uh, looks like that's finally starting to get going. Uh, yeah, that was a, another uh, very nice uh, win for the, the National Corn Growers Association and others associated with agriculture as well that had their various interest in uh, aspects of the farm bill and. I had the opportunity as uh, president of the National Corn Growers Association to actually join the president on stage during that signing, and which was a, a real honor. But yeah, we've moved into the implementation phase here. And uh, there was a couple things that uh, uh, NCGA was looking at, uh, one being uh, maintenance for a viable crop insurance program and uh, that has not changed much and so there won't be uh, much work in that particular arena but one of the the other things that will be real important to our membership was that after 2020 going into the 2021 crop year there will be an election in title one as to whether they want to stay with the plc election or the art county depending upon what the market forces look like at that point in time uh, which you know, nobody's crystal ball is good enough to tell what's going to happen two years out, which is the reason why we were advocating for the choice. And so starting 2021 and each year thereafter, then there will be an annual opportunity to, to change that selection. So and going on uh, beyond that, then uh, there's a provision in this farm bill for 
uh, a demonstration of soil health. Uh, soil health is something that the National Corn Growers Association has been looking into uh, specifically over the last uh, four years with our soil health partnership uh, program then to take a look at ways in which uh, we can improve the soils on our farms in a, a demonstrative fashion then across the Corn Belt. And then along comes something that you could not have foreseen, I don't think. Uh, caught everyone by surprise when all of a sudden during the Super Bowl, here you've got Anheuser-Busch running commercials about uh, beer with no corn syrup in it. You kind of got caught in a beer war all of a sudden. Yeah, that was a real spontaneous reaction uh, by our membership as well. I mean, the, the social media, the Twitter feeds just lit up phones all over the countryside, you know, when Anheuser-Busch chose to run that at Super Bowl. And and uh, we're really sensitive to that because we are, we've taken a lot of shots in the public arena, you know, by people that are attempting to differentiate their product, you know, from their competitors in a situation where, you know, in, in our minds, the, they'll take a path that is unwarranted to criticize you know, a product that is otherwise, you know, uh, very beneficial in, uh, you know, a in this particular case as a food ingredient that is used in the fermentation of the beer and why Anheuser-Busch did it. Um, I, I think that shortly thereafter they might have had some second thoughts about it, but uh, they had tens of millions of dollars on the line already invested in it just in the Super Bowl ads uh, not to say the other subsequent ads that around that message that they had already booked and spent money on. And so, um, you know, in, in one regard, they, they haven't changed that. The, the thing that they have changed is the fact that uh, farmers are the key providers of all of the ingredients that go into the beer, whether it's rice or whether it's corn or whether it's barley you know or the hops that go into that are all provided by farmers in one aspect or another so you know i i think that they've gotten the message that they shouldn't be singling out and try to pick on one component plus you probably now have a stronger relationship with coors don't you uh we do it <laughs> give us it give us a real opportunity uh, uh it, uh, it did not fall uh, silent upon uh, Miller Coors, you know, and uh, we happened to be having a board meeting that was out in Denver that very week after the Super Bowl, and so uh, we had an opportunity to speak directly with Pete Coors, and he came in, and, uh, yeah, we made a big deal of it, you know, because they were not willing to back away from those farmers that are providing all of the good ingredients for their uh, beers as well. Len, finally, what's if you're taking the temperature of your membership and the growers that you're talking to about issues like trade and E15, all these, what would that temperature be? Are they uh, losing patience? They are staying patient, optimistic? How would you uh, describe it? Um, I I would say that our membership is uh, fairly understanding about the situations um, when they're informed about everything that the National Corn Growers Association is attempting to get done on their behalf. 
I mean, we are really working hard about increasing market demand because we have seen that uh, we have the ability when the weather cooperates to do an extremely good job on the production side and we produce it then we've got to be able to find a home for it. Uh, Unfortunately uh, the aspect of being so good at what we do on the production side is leading to a situation where year over year for three or four years now that we have experienced some really tight economic times uh, that's an accumulative effect, and uh, economics in the countryside is tougher this year than it was last year. Um, the last couple of years, uh, we have been bailed out by good crops and extra bushels in a situation where, you know, uh, for the most part, we've been able to see um, a little bit of black ink, and but it is nowhere close to being a healthy economy, you know, like we would all like to experience. Still plenty to do. Lynn Crisp, thank you very much. Appreciate it. It's been very good to visit with you today, Mike. So anytime. Lynn Crisp, president of the National Corn Growers Association here at Commodity Classic in Orlando, Florida. Stay with us. More coming up here on AOA. Effective. Proven. Tough. Consistent. Reliable. A lot of adjectives can describe a herbicide's weed control, but one only applies to Liberty Herbicide. Superior. Liberty Herbicide has no known resistance in row crops, more convenient application flexibility, and excellent control of key weeds. All backed by the Liberty Weed Control Guarantee. Learn more at liberty.basf.com. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. And welcome back here at Commodity Classic in Orlando, Florida. Secretary Purdue has uh, spoken to the attendees. He said, let's pray for a great China resolution, but understand that it's not our only market. And says Ambassador Lighthizer is committed to getting a deal with Japan that is TPP or better. And he also said that the U.S. should move to quotas instead of Section 232 tariffs against Mexico and Canada. And also talked about the the concerns over um, social media and attacks on our food and food production system, saying we've got a movement that's creating fear of our food. Secretary Purdue saying that growers should open up their farms to outsiders because they have nothing to hide some of the comments from Secretary Purdue here at Commodity Classic. Well, we try to keep you updated on the ongoing effort, uh, the educational process uh, when it comes to soybean cyst nematode and uh, reminders that producers need to uh, you know, have in mind and some things that they can be doing. Sam Markell is with us from North Dakota State. Sam, thanks for joining us. Uh, I know the big push, the big emphasis is still about testing, right? It is. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, we we have a problem with soybean cyst nematode, and growers are 
Growers are aware of this to some degree. Uh, we know it's causing yield loss, but not everyone's seeing, seeing the symptoms, and things have changed in the recent past. So we were trying to get everyone to get out soil sample and check your numbers. Take the test, beat the pest is the slogan, but really we need to get people thinking about how to actively manage SCN. Custon's the first way. And what are we seeing in different parts of the country? The challenges... Uh up in the Dakotas as opposed to the I states. What are the differences there? Yeah, the challenges where I'm from, so in basically the northern tier and kind of the western edge of soybean production, is that SCN wasn't an issue 10 or 15 years ago, but it's expanded into those regions. And so we're on the leading edge of this front, and what we see is a lot of growers aren't familiar with SCN, and if they're not using some sort of resistance, not rotating their crop, they might take a 40% yield hit in some cases, which is not uncommon in my area, and they're not seeing symptoms. Yeah, so they're taking that yield hit, but not knowing it's from SCN. That's right. Lots of times the plants aren't even yellowing up until you see a 15 to 30% yield hit. And, you know, when it does show up, it's yellow spots. And, of course, you know, yellow spots can be caused by many, many different things. And the way you really check for SCN is the soil test. You know, compared to some place in the I states, Iowa, Illinois, where they've seen SCN for many years, they've been managing it with genetic resistance, but the nematode is changing. You know, it's not a lot different than what's going on in the herbicide world. And so in some cases, that's even worse because you think you're managing it, you're not expecting to take a yield hit, and then if the plants aren't yellowing up, you're not actually seeing it, but you might be seeing it when, when you harvest. Because I know we talk about uh, take the test, beat the pest for some time now, and some growers, especially in the Midwest, might be thinking, hey, we, we've got this under control. We, we dealt with that a long time ago, but they may still have an issue. Yeah, that's right. And I think, I think you know, 10, 15 years ago, they probably did have it under control. I mean, they were doing exactly what you'd, you'd hope they'd do. It's the nematode that's been changing. So that genetic resistance that was working really well for a while, you know, that's not working as well anymore. And so we really want to get the growers in the fields and sample and see what their egg levels are see if it's working in their field and there are a few other things you can do you know to accent that so but you got it you got to get in there and test and see if it's working see how well we're talking with sam markell from north dakota state sam uh here at commodity classic uh, there's been an announcement made about a strategic plan in fighting scn tell us a little bit about that yeah that's right so the checkoff organizations are really really engaged in this so the north central soybean research program the united soybean board they've funded a lot of really good research in the past on scn and they, they continue to do so and so the strategic plan has six different points of areas they want to invest in and areas they want to attack areas that they think that they can throw some money at and help manage this problem such as so it ranges from some of the new higher tech molecular tools you know for the genetics of resistance all the way till awareness and messaging I mean so the strategic plan is very very broad so you talked about the the yield loss that may be happening without uh, producers even realizing it but there's always a concern with do the varieties that protect against SCN, do you lose yield just by planting those varieties? Where are we at in that back and forth? Yeah, that's a legitimate concern, and a lot of the growers that would have planted resistance in the 90s would have seen probably some yield drag. And so that's one of the reasons we have the one main source of resistance in the U.S., this 88788 is what it's called. And certainly you don't see yield drag with that. But those other sources of resistance have improved a lot. So something like Peking, you know, there may have been in the past, but that's a lot better now. Um, so as breeders have time, they're able to breed out those other undesirable traits. And what you get is a really nice looking soybean that does have resistance. So we're moving forward on that. So we've made progress, but there's still a lot to do. Yeah, managing SCN is complicated. It's a complicated system. 
And I, I would say that some of the new molecular technologies are really moving genetics forward in a really, really positive, quick way. And, and the checkoff has really led the way in investment in that. And it's all, it's a bunch of national researchers doing the work. So moving that into the growers that grow or, or the companies that are selling the varieties is really, really, I think, where we're at right now. So it's not like we can declare SCN has been uh, eliminated. I mean, it, uh, that nematode continues to evolve. So the, the fight against the uh, the nematode has to continue to evolve as well. That's right. It's a little bit like trench warfare, right? So the nematode can adapt, it can, it can evolve, it can change, and it can overcome some of the tools we throw at it. So really the onus is on us to help get new tools into the marketplace so growers have the edge on SCN. Starts with the test. Yeah, take the test, beat the pest. And what's a test involved? You know, some would say, do I have time for it? What, how timely is it or, or time consuming is it? What, what What's it involved? Really, you want to try to figure out the numbers in that field and you might do it differently in different areas so in my area in the Dakotas we're still looking to make sure we have it or we don't so you might just sample the field entrance you want to aim for the soybean roots send the send the soil sample into a lab and you'll get a number back in the I states where you have SCN you've established you probably want to grid sample a field a little bit but again it's not it's not that complicated you know you're only looking at six to eight inches of soil it's a numbers game, so take a few, take pick a lot if you can, throw it in a bag, send it into the lab. And a lot of the state's checkoff organizations will actually pay for the lab fees. Not all, but a lot. All right, Sam, thank you very much. Good to see you. Appreciate you being with us. Yeah, good to see you too, Mike. All right. Sam Markell from North Dakota State as we uh, learn more about the ongoing efforts uh, to fight soybean cyst nematode. All right, with that, we wrap it up for our coverage of Commodity Classic here in Orlando, Florida. Hope you've enjoyed our, our shows yesterday and today. Uh, coming up on Monday, we're going to be looking at efforts again to get a tax extenders package passed and much more uh, to talk about as well. Have a great weekend. Be safe. Be careful. Thanks for joining us here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture.